if you're rushing, if you're broke, if you're uh, in trouble financially, uh, and you're and you're seeing ten people an hour in a walk-in clinic, or in your family practice, or in a merge, or as a specialist, it's going to bite you on the rear end eventually. Have you ever had a complaint against you that was to your chief or even to the college? If you haven't, bear in mind it's going to happen. One does not go through this profession in the healthcare profession without having at least one letter of complaint or at least one lawsuit. Those are the statistics. I'm just telling you what is reality. Most complaints come from the fact that there is trouble with communication and one has to think about why there is trouble with communication where does that stem from what is the root of that communication problem and if you look deep enough and look far enough you could probably find that people are overworked people are burnt out you are burnt out as you know based on the last Canadian statistics 40% of all Canadian doctors are burnt out and 87% of all emerged doctors in Canada are burnt out. And by being burnt out, you have a little bit less compassion. In fact, you may have lost all your compassion. And because of that, you're a little bit more rude, a little bit more abrupt, a little bit more dry without you knowing, noticing it. But your patients will notice it. And if you did something wrong and the way that they were treated, they will definitely complain. And so where does this come from, do you think? deep down inside is there a correlation between your work your relationship with colleagues your relationship with patients your burnout and your finances in this episode we're going to discuss how sometimes mismanaging your finances can lead to burnout and also college complaints how's my financial health doc Welcome to the Financial Literacy Podcast for Healthcare Professionals, where financial security and wealth topics are not a taboo. Welcome, everybody. Uh, welcome back to the How's My Financial Health Doc podcast. And today we are joined by my good friend, Dr. John Crosby whom you've heard for the first time on my previous podcast called Burnout. And uh, Dr. Crosby is back with us to talk about <coughs> another complaint, sorry, another issue that is also very dear to us as physicians. But to be honest, it's not just physicians. It could be nurses. It could be nurse practitioners. It could be physician assistants. It could be dentists. Um, and it could be lawyers because we are all regulated by a regulatory body that oversees our work and the quality of our work. And today we are going to be talking about what these regulatory bodies can uh, do um, to us uh, in terms of college complaints. And so today we're going to be attacking the topic of college complaints, whether it's from the physician college or the dental college or even the legal college, which is the bar. And so we're going to talk about different factors that affect that. Uh, good morning, Dr. Crosby. Boo, how are you? I'm very good. How are things on your side? Just great in Cambridge. Perfect. And you guys still don't have COVID yet, do you? 
No, we've been really lucky, plus hard work, and there's no COVID, knock on wood, in our eight nursing homes. And we've only had about 10 COVID deaths for 150,000 people. So we're, we're really lucky, and we're working our butts off to behave ourselves here. So just fingers crossed. That's that's awesome. That's awesome because we are drowning in the GTHA. But to hear that uh, Cambridge is doing well is actually a very comforting uh, thought. Uh, John, today we're going to be talking about college complaints. So you have a lot of experience with that. Tell us a little bit about your own experience, not from the not from the the fact that you're you have complaints, but from helping other physicians. Tell us a little bit about that. So I've been a family doctor and a merge doc for 46 years, and uh, I have had college complaints. And I always say that when I work with other doctors and nurses and nurse practitioners and physician assistants. So uh, I'm not perfect, and I have learned from my complaints. And uh, I think that really helps a lot. I'm not some professor crapping on you from my ivory tower on high. Uh, I still see 30 patients a day. Uh, I have, I'm out here all alone with my secretary and my wife doing the billing. I don't have a bunch of house staff doing my charting for me and seeing my patients. You know, I'm on the front lines, just like the rest of you. I work for the College of Physicians and Surgeons in uh, Ontario as a supervisor. So that means if a doctor gets in trouble with a lot of complaints, they have to pay me out of their own wallet to help them get back on track and find out what caused the complaints and how we can fix that. And I've had a lot of success. I've worked with seven different doctors and uh, we've all been successful. So I can help you as well. So John, I, I'm part of that process too. I actually am a, a, peer, a peer assessor for the college, but I'm also a supervisor like you are. And in this role as a supervisor, I mean, as much as we are, quote unquote, working for the college, this role is really an educational role uh, and is to help the physician, quote unquote, rehabilitate and do better in the eyes of the college so that they fight off this uh, complaint and get better. Uh, That's how I see the role as a supervisor. How do you see it? And are there any aspects of the role that you can also describe? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Vu. It's it's not a punitive role. We're not here to punish you. We're here to help you give better care to your patients. Okay, so tell us a little bit uh, through your experiences. What are the types of complaints? What are the natures of the complaint? Okay, yeah, and it's this is the same everywhere across the world too. When you look at the literature, the the number one cause of complaints is poor communications. You know, I my joke always is. You can cut off the wrong leg on a patient, but if you communicate well and they like you, they're not going to complain or sue you. And I know that sounds cynical, but a good bedside manner is totally for real. That's been going on since the start of humans. You know, if you're nice to people, if you're talking to them, they will forgive you anything. And if they see you as a cold bureaucrat, they're going to complain to the college or sue you. So You know, you always want to show that you're friendly and helpful. Uh, And it it ties in with what you preach all the time, Vu. If you're rushing, if you're broke, if you're uh, in trouble financially uh, and you're you're seeing 10 people an hour in a walk-in clinic or in your family practice or in a merge or as a specialist, it's going to bite you on the rear end eventually. 
you're going to annoy somebody and they're going to complain to the college. And then the college comes and looks at your charting. And if they see your charts are very cursory, just a few lines, uh, especially with opioids and narcotics, and we'll get into that later, uh, that's when you're in big trouble because they're going to send in a supervisor like me and you're going to have to pay me lots of money to teach you how to chart properly again. So uh, communication properly, proper charting, those are the big two. I uh, absolutely agree. And like yourself, I've had college complaints as well uh, when I first started practicing. And so it's it's definitely a process that is very nerve wracking. You don't know what's happening and you think that you may have your license pulled away. And so those are not fun times, I can tell you that. Um, and even as a supervisor and as a peer assessor, every time I get a letter from the college, uh, I always panic before I open the letter, right? I don't know if you get that or not. I still get it. Uh, and it's not until I open the letter that I realize that I'm being requested to work on a case that my heart kind of uh, slow down a bit. But getting that letter from the college is definitely not a nice uh, feeling at the beginning. Yeah, and- I'll, I'll walk you through what a complaint feels like. So what happens is uh, the patient, if they're mad at you about something or they have something go wrong, a lot of them will just Google uh, physician complaints, doctor complaints, and the College of Physicians and Surgeons will pop up on their Google search right away. So they can complain very easily. It's, it's, it was a lot tougher in the, the bad old days. You know, they, had, they couldn't figure out who to complain to. You know, they'd complain to the local hospital or local medical society. So now it's much easier to complain and they can do it in your waiting room after they've walked out. So the college is good. They will actually call you right away, you know, within a day or two, and they will chill you out because they know you're going to freak out as soon as they you see their number on your phone. And they'll say, you know, we've had a complaint, you know, don't jump off a bridge. Uh, we can get through this. And they, they have an alternate uh, dispute resolution system that's new. It's just in the last couple of years because uh, College complaints used to take two years and they just drove everyone crazy. It was horrible. So now they'll try to get it done within a month or two. And for a minor complaint, uh, they usually can resolve it right over the phone. If it's a more serious complaint or a sexual complaint, then you're back into a long term problem. But so the vast majority, 90 percent can be resolved very quickly and usually just over the phone. So that's a big, big step forward for all of us. The college wants to do this quickly. We want to have it done. It's a huge cause of burnout for all physicians. I mean, there isn't any physician in the world that doesn't just it go nuts when they see that thing come in because it's it goes to the core of your being. You know, you think I'm going to lose my license. There's nothing else I can do in life. You know, I can't be an auto mechanic. I can't be a plumber. I can't be a teacher. I can't be a lawyer. I, I can't make the same kind of money and have the same prestige as I have as a doctor. So it is the worst thing that can happen to, you know, short of death and injury in yourself or your family or friends. So this is the number one stressor and burnout for all of us worldwide. That's a pretty scary thing. So it's not as bad as it looks, you know, take a deep breath and uh, the college will work with you. And, you know, the vast majority are resolved and the patients are happy and you're happy. I agree with you. Um, You've mentioned a lot of things there. One of the thing is that it's a process um, and you can't stop patients from making complaints. That's their right. Um, And 
as a professional, whether you're talking about dentists, lawyers, NPs, whoever it is, as long as you're a professional, you're exposed to patient or client complaints. That's that's the nature of the beast of what we do as professionals. You can't avoid people from complaining. So it's going to happen at some point in your career. And so it's a process. Understand that is a process and understand that there is ways to get out of it. And the college will help you with it. But I believe the CMPA is your first line of defense. So the moment you get a complaint from the college, never answer the college on your own, never answer the college immediately, always call the CMPA. And the CMPA obviously is there to help you and they have different ways to help you, whether it's a lawsuit, whether it's a complaint, whether it's a reply to the college, the CMPA will help you with that. And thing that they do very, very well is to calm physicians down because they see this every day. You may get a complaint once or twice in a lifetime. They see this every day. So they have the tools to help you. Uh, John, you mentioned two things that are major things that you know get physicians into trouble. One is communication. And I got a complaint from the college exactly for that reason, communication when I was young and stupid. I'm probably old and stupid now, and I probably will run into troubles of communication as well. So I always have to keep working at it because it is a work in progress, especially when you work in the emergency department, you're always in a rush, in a rush, in a rush, and you're pressured by the four, five, eight hours wait out there. There's definitely room for making another mistake. So I always have to be careful with that. And uh, I'm not sure that having more white hair uh, makes me wiser, although I, I like to think I am, but it's still something that I have to work on all the time. So communication, and you mentioned opioids, narcotics, and benzodiazepines are very much um, factors in college complaint. Any other thing that you uh, would want to address? Like, for example, you mentioned uh, sexual harassment, right? Definitely not something we want to uh, be accused of, but is there... Are there any other major issues that get physicians into trouble? Yeah, I think, Vu, uh, and this is a new thing, that these are new that are help happening to us. And is number one is the internet. So Dr. Google, and that gets a lot of doctors angry. You know, the patients come in and say, Dr. Google says this, and you, you go, you know, well, why don't you call Dr. Google? Or why, why don't you, you know, what medical school did he go to? Uh, it can just set you off. It's, it's annoying. So you have to accept it. It's not going to go away. You're not going to fix it. You can't stop it. So I embrace it. You know, my whole philosophy is life of, of life is if something's bad, make it good. You know, if you hate being on call, make on call, make you happy. You know, if you hate Mondays, make Mondays your favorite day. And you and I can talk about that later in other podcasts. So when they come in and everyone, uh, I actually did a small study here with a medical student. I had her talk to every patient I saw in a week, you know, a hundred people and every single one of them consulted Dr. Google. They either told me or they did it surreptitiously behind my back. And so it's going on. The only ones who didn't are, you know, people over 80. So everybody under 80 looked at Dr. Google and they always think the worst, you know, they have a headache, they Google it, it's a brain tumor. You know, I've seen one brain tumor in 48 years, I've seen 10,000 tension headaches, but they all think 
it's a brain tumor and they want a CAT scan and an MRI. So you have to meet those expectations. So, I, and I do it in a nice way. I don't do it in a nasty, I don't say, oh, what the hell, Dr. Google. I go, that's great. You know, I'm glad you're consulting Dr. Google. It means that you care about your health. Uh, let's work together. But I always say to you know, anybody can go on Google and, and any snake oil salesman can get out there a lot of people are trying to sell you stuff, vitamins and minerals and herbs and spices. So let's look at what you're looking at. So I Google it with them and we sit down and we look on good sites, you know, like the Mayo Clinic or College of Family Practice of Canada, you know, Choosing Wisely Canada. We look at uh, really good sites and, and I go through it with them and I'll say, you know, okay, you have, you've been having headaches for a few months. Let's look. Brain tumors can cause that. So we can check you over. And if necessary, we can do a CAT scan and do that. But, you know, 99.999% of headaches are caused by tension and stress. So let's look at that as well. You just mentioned the internet and the fact that patients come in with a certain expectations. And it's not to belitter their expectation, but to manage their expectation. Uh, thirdly is the all the controlled substances, so <coughs> opioid narcotics and benzodiazepine. So okay, let's let's look at uh, communications first. So first of all, let me just take you through. I walk in the room, you know, I look at the chart before I get in there, and so I'm ready for them. I don't look like I don't have a clue about them, which shows lack of respect. And you can do that as an emergency doctor too. And they're really angry because they've been waiting eight hours in emergent. Everybody and their dog has asked them the same story. You know, they've talked to the triage nurse and the clerk and the medical student. And you're the fifth person to walk in saying, what's wrong? And they just want to kill you. So you immediately you're in an adversarial situation, you know, and that's going to get you sued or complained about if something goes wrong. That's going to cause burnout with you because your whole day is dealing with angry people. So you once again, you can turn this upside down and you can say, reading off the chart, the nurse tells me that. So you're you're not the fifth guy saying, what's your problem? You're saying you're actually reading what the people said ahead of you, which the patient's think you aren't because you're not and say the nurse tells me that and me as a GP I walk in the door and I say my secretary tells me you're in here for your cholesterol so you know there uh, once again right off the bat now pre-covid times I would sh wash my hands and shake their hand and wash my hands again I can't do that now so I have full PPE on and so do they and I you know I bump uh, elbows or we're talking over zoom but I, I, I lighten them up, you know, how, how are you feeling? How's the weather? If I know they have any hobbies or anything, I talk about that. I know their kids, you know, I, I sort of small talk and then say, uh, you know, it says here you're in for your cholesterol, any other problems that you have. So I bring that out immediately. So if they have a whole bunch of things, then we can manage that, those expectations. And then after I do the history and physical, at the very end of it, I always say, have we covered everything adequately? You know, are you happy with stuff? And then I look at their body language too. You know, if they, they still look angry or perplexed or something, you know, I'll say it seems like there's something more going on, you know, because they might want to talk about erectile dysfunction and they're worried about it or embarrassed by it or stuff like that. So, or, or uh, medication problems or opioids or weed or alcohol or cigarettes. So, you know, I'm always trying to get that, that hidden agenda. So when they walk out of the room, 
they're happy that they've been heard, they've been listened to, I've communicated with them. I haven't just rushed them off with the, and that's hard for us, you know, and you and I are the same, Vu. I mean, we're really fast. We talk really fast. Um, we have to slow ourselves down and shut up and let the patient talk. So I have to actually stop myself from talking and just sit there and let them and have, sometimes you can have some embarrassing silence, you know, just let them talk let them get it out. Don't force them. Don't start asking them a bunch of questions like open-ended question, like, how are you feeling? Then sit back and shut up and uh, let them talk. I agree uh, 120% if that, that exists. One point that you mentioned is always say, you know, uh, Mr. Smith, uh, I hear or I read from the nurse that you come in with this issue. And that really shows that one, you've read the note and that you care. Because the one thing that they always complain is, didn't you guys talk to each other? <laughs> like, I've been I've been seeing five other people, and don't you guys ever talk to each other? Like, what's the communication here? So always start with that. The one trick that I've learned in the emergency department, I'm, I know that we're all rushed. Like, we're all under the gun, and we're all under pressure. Taking a chair, sitting on a chair, just say, I understand you came for this reason. Is that right? Can you tell me more? And that open-ended question, and then shut up. And then I use the term WAIT, which stands for W-A-I-T, which stands for why am I talking? And so I always take that approach. I bring the chair, I sit down, I say my first sentence, and then I shut up and I wait. I know that it is extremely difficult for emergency doctors to do that because we are trained very differently. But if we don't do that, then we risk rushing things and we take the shotgun approach, right? Uh, Mr. Smith, you came with fever. They they barely said the first sentence. And the next question is, do you have a do you have vomit? Do you have chest pain? Do you have headache? Do you have diarrhea? Do you have this? Do you have that? And then five minutes later, you're done, but the patient have said nothing. And so that type of gunshot approach really, really does not help us. And it's really not uh, a collaborative uh, process. And, you know, physicians think that by asking those shotgun approach, that they're much more efficient and they do things much more easily. But at the end of the day, the patient perceive it very differently, but also from a process perspective, you got what you wanted, but what you don't see is you don't know. And so if you did not allow the patient to actually tell the story, how do you know where to go and get it? So you're gonna be asking 10,000 shotgun questions and never hit target. Whereas if you allow the person to talk, you actually now hit 80% of target and actually didn't speak at all. And so you finish off the other 20% of the target with a few more targeted and focused questions. I found that it has worked for me and it has been much more efficient. And the patient feels like you're actually listening. Yeah, that's brilliant, Vu. And I really want to underline that for our listeners too is uh, and it's it's called body language too like body language is just as important as what you're saying especially with people with english as a second language or a fourth language like you and so uh and we see that in canada i mean we have 150 languages that we deal with so you know make sure you have a good interpreter even if you have to do it over the phone and uh, you know you and it, and they're looking at how you're seeing looking at them and smiling and you can't even see that you're smiling when you have a mask on so always inter and i just went up to the emergency department with a friend last week who was having a stroke and 
the nurse came in. Uh, he didn't introduce himself. He just started talking questions. You know, what do you, what's this? What's that? It was really rude. You know, didn't say, hi, how are you? I'm the nurse. My name is Chris. Uh, no name tag. You know, he could have been the janitor. Like we, it was, I was really angry at it. And, uh, you know, if something had gone wrong, I would have written a complaint to the hospital or the college or something. It was, and how long does that take you to say, hi, I'm the nurse. I'm Chris. How are you? And that, that takes three seconds, and that's going to save you a lifetime of grief and hassle and stuff. So uh, none of this takes any time at all, and it's just common courtesy. And Canadians are the most courteous people in the world, so let's get that back. So you'd ask me about sexual assault. So what I do there is always, always, always have a chaperone with you. And, and you can't use an excuse that you're too busy or you don't have enough staff. Like I am in my office with just my secretary. So I am, I have the least number of staff of anybody in Canada. You can't be anything less than I do. And what we do is if we're doing a physical on a woman, uh, I will start uh, history uh, just her and I, we're talking, I'm typing in the computer, looking at her, uh, typing and uh, pivoting to type in the computer, asking permission, do you mind if I type this out? So I'm not just looking at the computer and her, we get a lot of college complaints about that. Uh, you know, the doctor just looked at the computer the whole time. So I'm looking at her, leaning forward, listening, nodding, you know, uh, nonverbal cues, that I'm listening and I'm actively uh, picking up what she's telling me, uh, shutting up and letting her talk. So then when I say, okay, I'm gonna leave and bring my secretary back to do uh, the internal examination and the breast examination, uh, and here's a gown, and I give them a paper gown that looks like a poncho, and I bring my secretary in and she's talking to the, the woman at the top, and uh, I'm explaining everything I'm doing. You know, now I'm going to check your breasts for lumps for cancer. I'm going to check uh, an internal examination here, and I show her what the Pap smear looks like. Here's what the speculum looks like. Here's what the brush looks like. I let her feel the brush. This is the soft uh, brush that we're going to put in the uh, the neck of your cervix. And I don't use big words. You know, never uh, assume that people know all the words you know. And, uh, you know, I'm always watching her and listening. And that's how you stay out of trouble. Then, and in your chart, and you say in your chart, because everything is in the chart. So you type all this stuff down. If you don't type it, it didn't happen. The doctors that get into trouble are the guys that are sitting in there alone. And then it's he said, she said. And even if you are found innocent, that destroys your entire life. You know, it's like being accused of sexual abuse. Everybody just says, well, he did it no matter what happens. So you need to protect the patient. You need to protect yourself because you don't want this to happen once in your entire lifetime because it will destroy you. When people are in a rush, uh, they don't necessarily think of it to get a chaperone. So even though we teach it in medical school and in residency, we sometimes forget because we are in a rush. 
And also the last thing you mentioned is the charting. If you didn't chart it, it didn't happen. So if you did have a chaperone, please write down the fact that the chaperone was in the room when you're performing that private exam. And please write the name of the person that was there because it will inevitably happen that you will write, yeah, the chaperone was there, but you have no clue. And this happened two years ago and you don't know who was working that day. It happened to be, you know, two receptionists or three or whatever. So always write the name. And in the emergency department, you know, you there's probably 20 nurses that's working that day. And so please write the name of the nurse. I want to come back to what you said earlier about the small talk and ask the question, have we covered everything? It really doesn't take much time, does it, John? But it actually shows the compassion and shows the, the rapport that you're developing with the patient. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of the times physicians don't want to open up that can of worms, right? Just before you leave the room, oh, by the way, uh, how about my headache, right? And so you're now hitting your your head on, on the door thinking, well, I should have left five seconds ago. And so you you if you ask the question, have we covered everything? And the patient either say yes or no. But if they do say yes, then your work is not complete. Because if you don't meet that expectation, the risk of getting a complaint is so high versus taking that extra five minute to deal with that expectation, right? If the patient says, yeah, I've got this, you know, headache and okay, fine. We can say, ask a few questions to understand whether the headache is immediate, urgent, emergent, or could this be dealt with in a subsequent visit, maybe a week down the line, but at least you've met that expectation. And if you don't meet that expectation, that's where the risk of complaint happens. And physicians, one, don't want to open that can of worm because they are always in a rush and they're seeing too many patients or they're pushed to see too many patients. So I just wanted to come back and address that. I totally endorse that. That is so true. And, and I teach time management and I'm always on time. And you're saying exactly the right answer there. So if someone has a list of problems or they say something with your hand on the doorknob, which is usually the thing that they're there for and they're embarrassed by it or they forgot it, you have to address that or they feel dismissed and that's when they complain about you. So you can still time manage that. And you said it all. If your hand is on the doorknob and you're an hour behind and they go, oh, yeah, doc, I've, I've had headaches for the past six months. That is not an emergency. You do not have to deal with that today. What you have to deal with is the patient expectation today. So you said, oh, thank you for letting me know that. That is great. You, we need to book a full, uh, I don't have time today to do this. As you can see, I've got a full waiting room. Uh, you appreciate me being on time. And the way I'm on time is I can't deal with everything all the time immediately. So this is not an emergency. Let's book a, a, a full checkup for you uh, next week. So they know you're going to deal with it but you're also setting limits with them and setting boundaries so they can't run all over you. You're all constantly triaging what you're seeing, but you're leaving the door open, you're acknowledging them, you, you know they have to do that. And the reason doctors get into trouble with time management, as, as you said, Vu, and as you preach in all your blogs, is they're having trouble financially. You know, they're coming out of school with big debts. They buy a big house, a nice new car for both them and their spouse. You know, they've been putting off all their desires for the past 10 years of medical school and residency. So they go hog wild and they're $2 million in debt. And all of a sudden you have to see 60 people a day to do that. 
your charting crummy, you're, you're annoying the patients. They complain to the college. The college sends an investigator, your crappy charter, and then you have to call Dr. Crosby to come and sort out your problems. One of the things with charting is the, the use of templates. I, I want to ask you, Vu, uh, what are your thoughts on using uh, pre-populated templates? My opinion is that you need to use them, but judiciously, and you need to use them smartly, intelligently. I would use template, but never pre-populated. And so the template is there to, one, avoid you typing too much because most of the information is there. But two, never auto-populate it because you have to customize it. The college has no issue with people using template, but they don't want to see the same template and the same pre-population everywhere. What they want to see is the template as a guide for you to not forget questions, as a guide for you to have a certain flow in your interview. But you still have to put in the yes, the no, uh, put in the fever of 37.5, put in, you know, what the context, I tripped over a dog versus every time is I trip over a carpet. Like those type of things need to be customized and needs to be customized to the patient and to the context. But the college has no issues with us using templates. And so when we use templates, we have you use it intelligently as a guide to a flow and as a guide to not forget questions, but we cannot just apply the template. And trust me, as a supervisor and as a peer assessor, I see that way too often where where physicians use template and I've reviewed, you know, 10 cases and eight out of the eight out of the 10 charts are exactly the same thing. They have not changed a single word. Maybe two out of the chart, they've changed one word, which is the temperature, right? But you cannot do that. I so agree. And this is very controversial. And this is the key to everything today in our our, uh, podcast. The seven doctors that I have supervised, every single one of them got spread too thin financially. They made lots of money. They were going too fast. Their charting was terrible. They were writing one or two words. And that's when you're in big trouble. And you should be in big trouble. I used to be a crummy charter. I used to draw draw a happy face and put three stitches on it. So I have come from being a horrible charter to being a really good charter by using templates judiciously, as Vu said, not as checklists, but as prompts. Prompts to be more thorough, prompts to type in uh, the the stuff that happens with each patient. You can't trip over the dog 10 times in a row. You have to say, uh, how did you hurt your ankle? And that the prompt is what the patient tells you. Now, and we do use temp, anyone that says, I don't believe in cookbook medicine has never cooked. I mean, I use cookbooks, the best chefs in the world use cookbooks. Uh, The Rourke baby scale is a cookbook. That's a template. Uh, depression scales, those are templates. They are been used for all tons of times. They're accepted by all the colleges across Canada, but you can't just do tick, 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 or yes, 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 yes. But they save you time and they help you be more thorough. So you're win, win, win here. You're helping the patient, helping the college, helping yourself, helping if you have a billing review, helping if you're sued. So win, 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 win but you can't just do tick, 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 tick. That, so that's the kind of stuff we're looking at. It helps you to go fast. 
faster because you're not typing the same old crap over and over again. It helps you to be more thorough because you don't forget anything in the Rourke baby. You know, you don't forget when the baby sits up or gets his first tooth. So it's a win for each of us. So that's what I'm talking about templates. And that's when I'm supervising these doctors who are in trouble with the college, I'm hammering that into them. You gotta do that on every single patient that you're typing on. You've gotta be more thorough. You can't just put uh, upper respiratory infection Z pack. That's what these guys are typing and that's how they're gonna lose their license and destroy their life. You brought up two very good points. One, use the flow sheets, whether it's the PHQ-9, whether it's the Rourke. Those flow sheets are very important because they allow you to be complete. It standardizes uh, the process. So the college loves that, but it needs to be uh, customized. Two, you know, the people who write, you know, URI and then ZPAC, and on every single chart, you see the same ZPAC, that will get you into trouble for sure. And to be honest, you know, uh, if, if that's the template that you're working on, th then of course you're going to get a complaint from the college and the college is going to come down on you. Because a lot of the times I see URTIs or viral codes ending up with the same five-day Z-Pack. You know, if you want to use template to customize it, but two, to customize it in a way that makes sense. I want to come back to the why you've mentioned it many times the charting is crap we go fast uh we we try to cut corners because we're trying to see 10 to 12 patients an hour in our walk-in clinic or in our family practice or you know a lot of the merch docs that i know they'll they 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 are actually you know, boasting themselves that they can see 10 patients in, uh, in an hour. The average emergency doctor sees somewhere between 2.5 to 3 an hour. How the hell do you see 10 an hour? And they are very happy and they boast and they feel proud that they're seeing 10. Once again, you're hitting it right on the, the nose and people get greedy. And once again, I've been here. I'm not preaching this good guy. I mean, I was just like everybody else. You know, I had a big mortgage and I had debt and I had three kids, uh, two in university. I still got one on the payroll and I'm 73 years old now. So I'm still struggling. It's tough. And I think, and that's why I really appreciate your podcast because you're the only person I've ever met in my huge career that integrates all this stuff because everybody just says you should be a better doctor and be wonderful and stuff. No one ever goes, these guys are broke. You know, they have huge debts and they need to know how to handle their finances, too, because finances are driving their, their care as a doctor. It's making them see 10 people an hour, and they're going to be a crappy charter, and they're going to get in trouble with the college, and they're going to get sued. It's going to wreck their life. They're going to burn out. They're going to get divorced. They're going to be suicidal. They're going to be taking drugs and booze and uh, can't sleep at night. I mean, this is what ruins people's lives. This is why we, we have an 87% burnout rate in Canada's ERs. We have a 40% burnout rate in all of Canada's doctors. And this is what's driving it. And no one talks about it. Everybody's, oh, you know, it's this, that, and the other. It's not COVID. It's not wait times. It's money. It's people, you know, have to learn how to uh, budget properly. And I had to, you know, I'm still struggling. 
I don't know of any other profession, maybe maybe dentists or lawyers, but maybe these three professions where the day you come out to practice and you start your career, you're at minus 300,000 or minus 400,000 in debt. Like I don't I don't see another career that's like that. And so it's not it's not Im- unimaginable to see that, you know, the moment you start practicing, you're you're in a deep hole in debt. And then you've been deprived of luxury your entire life. And the moment you start working, you buy a $4 million house. All of a sudden, you're $4 million and three hundred in debt. And that drives your decision. And the finance drive your decision. And it's funny that in all the literature that talks about burnout, you know, Dr. Google, EMR, charting, you know, technology, uh, patient expectations. But nobody ever wants to address the elephant in the room, which is finance. And that is really important topic. And I understand I'm very passionate about it because, you know, I've seen it. I see it in my colleagues. I see it all the time when they talk about their $4 million home and their nice uh, Mercedes Benz, but yet they're, you know, 2 million in debt and they're going on a shift and they're, they're boasting about seeing 12 patients an hour because that's how much they make per shift because they meet a certain, they have to meet a certain expense per month. Uh, And when COVID hit, when COVID hit, emergency department volumes and family medicine volumes in a day just dropped by 50%. The surgeons who can't operate, all the elective surgeries are canceled. Their salary dropped by 50%. So all of a sudden, you've got all these expenses per month, but yet your 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 income monthly basis just dropped by 50%. And now everybody's panicking and everybody's not wondering what to do. Uh, and everybody's now panicking. Uh, and a lot of us are trying to figure out how to manage that drop of 50%. And to be honest, most of us don't have an emergency fund too for those rainy days because we're always going to live in a good time and we're always going to make 40, 50,000 a month and we're never going to get disabled. We're never going to get ill. And so we live like teenagers where we think we're invincible and we don't prepare for it. <laughs> hate to laugh, but it's true. Well, and you know, once again, I am just as guilty as everybody else out there, and it's time we all admitted it. And and the and don't expect any kind of sympathy from anybody in the world. It's like no one sympathizes with teachers. They go, oh, they make a hundred thousand bucks a year, and they get three months off. No one cares about you except you. Even your spouse, if they're not a doctor, doesn't have a clue what your life is like. So you have to look after yourself. I have to look after myself. And you have to sit down with your financial planner and your banker and your accountant and figure out how you're going to deal with this. You know, if number one is start a budget. Where's the money going? Where is there any place you can cut? Uh, where is there any place you can increase your income? You know, you've got to, you can't just put this off. It's not going to get better. It ends up in bankruptcy court. And whoa, that really hurts. Yep. All of a sudden, then you're on a forced diet, you know. And it is fixable. Like there is light at the end of the tunnel. There is help there with you, Dr. Vu, and I'm glad you're doing this. I turn it over to you. Tell us all how to get ourselves financially uh, independent. Well, I think you, you hit one thing on the nail right there is it's fixable. I, like you, like 100% of my colleagues, I was in the same boat as everyone. I was overspending. I was seeing a lot of patients. I tried to rush. 
Um, and like, I got, I got college complaints myself and I had to deal with it. And it's not a fun process to go through. And five years ago, I decided to attack the elephant in the room. I literally said, this is what I need to do. You know, when, when I listed, when I listed the different factors of burnout, you know, Dr. Google, EMR, patient expectation technology, I cannot change any of those. Those are, none of those are in my control. The EMR is dictated by what my corporation and my, what my hospital wants to use, right? And we're going to with Meditech, uh, Epic, whatever, choose one. But I have no decision in that. So the only thing I have a decision in is my own personal finance and how I want to manage my money. And that dictates really what I do in my career. But the funny thing is nobody talks about that. So nobody knows that they need to do that. So nobody fixes it. Personal finance is the only thing that as an individual, I can actually attack and manage. And so let's come back to your question. How do we fix this? I'm not saying that fixing your personal finance will solve every single problem of burnout on this planet. And it, it may not be the major contributing factor of burnout for every single physician or every single college complaint. But I definitely see it as at least part of the equation of why you are doing things the way you're doing. And one of the things that people don't recognize, and I, and I talk about this a lot, is metacognition, right? Thinking about thinking. There are a lot of blind spots, things that you don't see, and your, your mind is playing tricks on you. And if you have a certain uh, mind that is playing tricks on you, and part of that is driven by personal finance, financial challenges, and you don't realize that, unless you unravel that, you will never be able to address it. And so, one of the things that I talk to people about and in terms of how to manage this is understanding cash flow. You know, when people say cash is king, well, I sort of agree and sort of disagree because cash flow is king, not cash. Cash flow is king. When you can properly manage cash flow, what's coming in and what's going out, right? And so the major thing, the most important thing is have a positive cash flow. What does that mean? Make sure you don't spend more than you take in every single month. It's hard to it's hard to do. I get it. I was in the same position five years ago, and from month to month, I'm actually spending more than uh, what I'm taking in. So I'm not saying it's easy. It's like weight loss. It's simple but not easy. Managing cash flow is simple but not easy. And so all the things that I talk about in my podcast, you know. Uh, live within your means, uh, lifestyle creep, uh, following up with the Jones or, or chasing the Joneses, all those things make us spend more than we make. And if we spend more than we make, then we feel like we have to make more. So how do we do it? As physicians, we only know one way, work harder, longer, faster. We don't know how to work smarter because no, nobody has ever told us how to do that. When we need more money, we just work harder, whereas we're supposed to be work smarter. Or we should look at the other part of the equation, which is spend less. And so the cash flow is try to achieve at least cash flow neutral or cash flow positive. But how can you have a cash flow positive if your mortgage is $4 million and you're still $300,000 in debt to start with? 
to to manage that cash flow is first of all don't get yourself in that situation to begin with otherwise you are tied to your mortgage you are a slave to that mortgage you are a slave to that mercedes-benz payment or you are a slave to all the things that you've committed to and not understanding what is a want what is a need and what is a wish i'm going to add that last one there's a want there's a there's a need and there's a wish there are a lot of things that is a need and we need to fulfill those financial commitments but a want and a wish can that be deferred a little bit obviously the answer is yes but do we do it no we don't that's so important and you know what's good about you and I as we are practical like we don't just say all this pie in the sky crap because we've lived it we actually give actual advice and so number one about cars here's my advice which i learned from a patient that was a mechanic uh i drive all my cars for 10 years 300,000 kilometers because we drive to florida and drive to the cottage and uh so i'm not buying a car every four years like i used to and uh get your oil changed every 5,000 kilometers look at your budget every month where can we cut costs here for both of us you know do you need that starbucks every day at 4 bucks a day times 365 days a year you know are you smoking for $6000 a year like where is this where is your money going to to the penny and fight it out between the two of you because you're going to fight it out eventually when you're in bankruptcy court i want to come back to the car um, because it's very important Everybody out there listening, please don't get me wrong. I am not saying don't get the Mercedes-Benz or don't get the BMW. It's absolutely not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is don't get the BMW and the Mercedes-Benz when you haven't even looked at your budget, pay what, what's important, uh, bring down your debt and manage your cash flow. If you're able to manage your cash flow and you're paying down debt and you're saving for the future and you want to buy that, you know, really Series 5 Mercedes, uh, sorry, Series 5 BMW, go ahead, knock yourself out. But don't do that until you've managed the other stuff first. Um, and, you know, the house that you want to buy, the $4 million house, of course, go knock yourself out first. Go knock yourself out as well. But make sure that it is not the first thing you do. It is maybe the second, third, or fourth thing you do by first making sure that you can actually do it, not be slave to the mortgage and paying yourself first. And I want to come back to that concept of paying yourself first because that's how cash flow is also tied into it. If you're always cash flow negative every month, first of all, there are some things you need to cut out of that spending. Um, and two, make sure you pay yourself first. When you're paying that BMW financing uh, uh, monthly payment, when you're paying the mortgage, when you're paying the internet bill, when you're paying the Netflix bill, when you're paying all that, you're paying someone else first. You're not paying yourself first. And you need to, one, pay yourself first and automate it. And what do I mean? I mean, every single month you set a target whether it's 20%, 25%, 15%, 10%, it doesn't matter. Set a target of how much you want to leave for yourself to either save or invest. And I've got a podcast on what's the difference between saving and investing. And it depends on what you, what your philosophy 
and what your strategy is, but leave that money to do that first. And whatever left at the end, you pay the rest. And if if you decided to use, let's say, 20% to pay yourself first, then there's 80% for you to use. In that 80%, decide whatever you want to. If you want to drink two Starbucks a day, go ahead, knock yourself out. Uh, but at least it's in that 80% and the 20% you've already saved for yourself. Slowly by doing that, you realize, wait a minute, I don't have enough in my 80% for two Starbucks a day. I don't have enough for a BMW. I don't have enough for this mortgage of $4 million. And eventually, slowly, you'll come to realize there are some things that you want to trim off your cash flow. And the first thing that's going to trim off the, the expense is going to be the wishes and then eventually the want. And what's going to dive down at the end, what's going to be you know, sitting at the bottom will be the need, which will all be covered. And if there's still money left uh, at the end of the day with that 80% and you still want to take your, your Starbucks once a day or twice a day, go ahead. But now you don't feel guilty about it. Now you can actually enjoy your Starbucks without feeling guilty about it doing that and not having saved there for some people that that luxury coffee is a need because they need to survive fair enough put it as a want but they're not everything in life is a want some of them are are needs some of them are want you just need to figure out what those are and try to come to manage to a cash flow positive every month and i had to do that i had to do that over the last five years i'm not saying it's easy it's simple but definitely not easy most doctors is and most people in the world is we're in denial like we don't even want to look at it i know when the stock market was crashing in 2008 i didn't even open my statements i didn't want to know how much money i was losing in my rsps and stuff like that it's like if i didn't look at it it wasn't happening like denial is an enormous thing we see it as doctors all the time it is very important what you just said there now you know, I'm I'm not a big budgeter, but I still subscribe to the idea of budget. I, I don't do big B budget. I do small B budget, right? And it doesn't have to be painful. I mean, there's a reason why, John, you and I went into medicine is because we didn't want to do budgets, right? I'm, I'm not a mathematician. And so when John talks about budget, it doesn't have to be painful. It doesn't have to be every penny. It could be the big spending first, right? It could be the big numbers. It could be the things that are recurring. Uh, like for example, the Starbucks, the, the, the monthly mortgage payment, the, the house payment, the internet, the Amazon, the Costco, all those big items could be in the budget and it doesn't have to be to the penny. And so I don't want the audience to say, oh my God, Vu, you're telling me to make a big B budget. I, I hate that. You know, to be honest, I hate that too. So I don't do a big B budget. I do a small B budget. And at least it allows me to figure out what is a want, what is a need and what is a wish. So definitely we have to do that. This is a treatable problem. It is a treatable problem. It is fixable. So all of you out there listening, please understand that this is fixable. And the first way to fix it is to understand all this. So having some basic, basic financial literacy is important. Thank you for sharing all that with us. Uh, just summarize top common um, factors of college complaints in your mind. Number one, be nice to your patients. Number two, Always be happy with people. Number three, smile. 
Number four, document, 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 document. That's it. Perfect. I think we will end with that. And I absolutely agree 120%. Well, there you have it, right? Right from the experienced and wise physician himself. As you can see, it is quite simple, but not easy. If you like this podcast, please share with at least one more person or one more colleague. I'm also going to take this opportunity to remind the audience about the June 4th all-day workshop on financial literacy. It will be an interactive workshop starting at 9 a.m. and finishing at 5 p.m. And if you want to look at the agenda and register, please go to www.beautifultimesinc.ca forward slash conference and workshops. Again, www.beautifultimesinc.ca forward slash conference and workshops. If you want to reach out to me, you can go on to my new website, financialhealthdoc.com. Again, it is financialhealthdoc.com or email me at hmfhd2020 at gmail.com. One more time, it is hmfhd2020 at gmail.com. How is My Financial Health Doc podcast is hosted by Dr. Vukit Tran. Dr. Tran is a physician with a special interest in personal financial security and wealth education. Dr. Tran does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through this financial podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. Please confer with your advisor, lawyer, or accountant for specific advice.